Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast and the third episode in our four-part indoor training series supported by Wahoo Fitness. My name is George Scott, Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, and today I'm joined by Matt Cassin, Senior Physiologist at Wahoo Fitness. Matt, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, in episode one of this series, Simon Bromley and I discussed everything you need to know to get started with indoor training, as well as our own personal setups at home and a few tips and tricks to help you out along the way, while Simon was back for episode two to take a closer look at how to choose the best smart trainer for your trainer needs. Today we've got Mac on to talk a little bit more about training itself and how you can get the most out of your time on the bike this winter, with some insight on training zones, training plans, workouts, nutrition, recovery, and a bit on bike fit along the way. But first, Mac, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit more about your role as a coach and the senior physiologist at Wahoo Fitness? Yeah, so um, I started uh, originally with the Sufferfest back in 2016. Um, I was working with uh, Neil Henderson at Apex Coaching at the time, and we we started, got a contract to write some training plans and new workouts for Sufferfest, and that sort of evolved to Neil and I became a, a Suff Science team in 2019, and then Sufferfest was acquired by Wahoo, and it's been a really cool transition to going from having the sports science approach to looking after just the app and training plans and workouts to being more integrated with just the Wahoo ecosystem and the hardware and um, different components there. So the the work we do really covers basically trying to get the most up-to-date science-based training ideology into all the different facets that Wahoo offers. And yeah, I mean, as someone who's kind of been been in it from the beginning from the, the suffer fest to how you're working now you, you would have seen the the you know, how how much the the kind of market has changed there in terms of the rise of the smart trainer indoor training apps and um you know from something that kind of relatively few people were doing um you know five years ago you know now it seems that most kind of fairly dedicated cyclists either have a kind of turbo trainer set up at home or at least kind of considering it for the winter season so you know, I think actually that's a, that's a kind of good place to start in terms of, you know, can you talk us through some of the, the potential training benefits that do exist training indoors, particularly from a, a kind of fitness and physiological point of view um, and, you know, how that how that landscape has changed in the last few years? Yeah. Um, so actually, I kind of bought into the whole indoor training thing um, in 2014 when I um, had a broke my collarbone at the end of August here and then had a collegiate track nats about eight weeks later and so I was just stuck indoor on the turbo for those eight weeks which originally I was like oh wow well there goes all chance of doing well there um and then ended up having uh my best ever set there and and won quite a few national titles and so it really made me appreciate that you know with the proper structure there's the benefits of you know you get a lot of benefits for indoor training of you know it's it's more time efficient you can be a lot more focused, especially if you ride in an area with there's a lot of traffic lights or if the terrain is really undulating and it's hard to hold a really steady power. Um, I know there's, you know, it's it's fun to go out and ride, but really the, the basis of, of training is hitting really precise, you know, physiological efforts and holding those at very steady paces to get the most. And so you can really not only can you be more time efficient just in terms of it doesn't take as long to get ready for an indoor ride or you know you're not stopping and starting as much but just the quality of 
the efforts you can maintain, the consistency plays a really massive, massive role in, in why it can be really beneficial to, to ride indoors versus outdoors. Um, in an ideal world, like for most people, you'd probably be, if you had the mental capacity to do it, everyone would probably be fitter if they did all their training indoors and then did their events outdoors. Obviously there's some caveats there for like handling and skills and whatnot, but just from a raw training perspective, you know, it's, it's essentially superior for 99% of people, unless you're a pro and can go live in Andorra or spend time in Mallorca where there's premium roads and you've got all day to train. Then yeah, indoor training can be, it's just a bit, it's just a bit better. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as much as we, we, we would like to kind of decamp ourselves to, to Mallorca or Andorra, not, not always possible or, or uh, yeah, that we've got the day job to contend with and, and family commitments and social lives and you know, particularly at this time of year. And, and you know, that, that it definitely is true that, you know, indoor training is just more time efficient and you get a lot more bang for your buck to use the, the kind of cliche. Um, I mean, something that I was going to ask, and this is you know, perhaps jumping ahead a little bit, but um for most people when they do start an indoor training plan particularly now the the fact that you have um apps to help you train you've got wahoo system in, in your case for most people it starts with a fitness test and you know how important is that as part of the kind of process in terms of benchmarking your fitness and then developing your uh your kind of intensity zones off the back of that mm-hmm. so in all honesty it's it's quite it's quite important to have an initial test of some sort to establish those baseline zones because it's really important to train at your current capacity to get the most benefit. Um, if you look at, you know, there's always like, oh, I want to get to say, you know, three watts per kilo at threshold or, you know, these, these random numbers and people will kind of like, okay, I'll just ride at that effort for longer, longer durations and hope it gets me there. But, but the reality is you need to, to training is about stressing, giving novel stress at the right intensity for the right durations to your body to allow it to adapt to that and improve. And if you're not, if that stress you're giving it isn't dialed in and I'm not saying like you need to be plus or minus two Watts for that, but it's like, you know, 5% under threshold is quite a bit different than 5% over threshold. I think everyone can appreciate that. And so it's that sort of, you know, fine tuning that if you want to get the most out of any sort of training you do, it really needs to be in the right intensity brackets. And now, um, for, for our, we have two different fitness tests. One is just more of a semi-standard ramp test. Um, that's a bit, it's mentally easier. It's, it's usually, you know, if you've never done a fitness test or it's been a while, that's a good one to go for. Um, we have another one that's more comprehensive and it gives you a breakdown of four different training intensities. And that one's significant because it, it gives us a better idea of where your abilities lie relative to one another, because that can dictate what you can train for. So if you're what we call maximal aerobic power or power at VO2 max is really low. Like if it's pretty close to your threshold, your FTP, then it doesn't matter how much FTP work you do, that maximal aerobic power acts as a upper ceiling. And so until you push that up, your FTP is not going to go up. And so having a more comprehensive fitness test allows you to see, okay, my goal is to be three Watts per kilo at FTP, but I'm finding out that, okay, my, I'm like 3.2 kilos for, maximum aerobic power. So I really need to increase that first. And that's different training intervals, different training targets. Um, so that can be a more in-depth approach, but for any training plan, it really is necessary to have appropriate training targets. And that comes down to fitness testing, unless you're like really old and, and not really old, but experienced and can know within plus or minus 10 Watts where, where your threshold is without doing any testing, which you Mm. can get there, but it means (laughs) <laughs> it it takes <laughs> it takes paying attention in a lot of different tests over the years. It it takes time, yeah. And uh, you know, I think just to kind of talk about you know, fitness testing a bit more. So um, you know, a standard ramp test, for example, uh, you know, that would give you a singular figure, um, and you know, depending on the protocol, but you know, broadly speaking, it's going to be FTP in terms of the the kind of rough wattage you could hold for approximately an hour. Is that right? For yeah, for most most FTP tests out there, they'll have some version of ramp and then they'll take 75% of the final one minute power. Um, the, the ramp test we do actually does give maximal aerobic power and FTP because that ramp portion is actually more related to your maximal aerobic power. Um, ours then has a heart rate constrained effort 
that gives a better representation of FTP because you get people who are more what we call anaerobically inclined, like attackers, sprinters who can sort of fake a ramp test and get through a few more stages than they really are doing aerobically. Um, so you can, if you know you're that type of person, if you know, like in short efforts, you can drop most of your friends most of the time, just know a, a standard ramp test is probably going to overestimate your FTP by, by a few percent. So you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar or haven't done a, a ramp test, you'll, you'll start a very easy wattage on a, on a smart trainer, for example, that's, that's controlling, um, the, the kind of power intensity or, or the wattage. Um, and then, at, at, um, at minute intervals that prescribed wattage will rise uh, until you fail, basically, until you can't pedal anymore. So, I've I've done a couple myself, and they're never a pleasant experience. It always starts feeling like oh, this is very very easy. I can go for twenty minutes or half an hour, but the the fatigue very quickly builds, and and you very quickly, in my case, kind of find where your where your limit is. But um, it does give you uh, a kind of a useful um, a useful figure out of it to kind of gauge those uh, those training zones and kind of build build the training plan from there. But the the kind of multiple kind of power profile test that you spoke about and i think it's called 4dp for the sufferfest or or wahoo so the the idea there is that you know it will give you a better idea of your um your sprint capabilities your vo2 max your kind of aerobic output and then you can specifically kind of target which area i suppose is either relevant to the event or the the training goal that you're looking to improve on um or you can look at specific weaknesses yeah exactly um because it's kind of the way I, I view it is, you know, training is your, what you're training for is, you know, your pinpoint on a, if you're going on a road trip, that's where your destination is. Um, and the, the route you take is the training plan you have, but your starting point is really what's your current capacity and what does that look like relatively? So you and someone can have the exact same FTP. One of you might have a maximum aerobic power that's, you know, 20 watts higher. So you're essentially starting at different parts of the city you're trying to get to the same destination. If you both follow the same training plan and both go left out your door for the first direction, you know, one of you is probably going to miss that destination because you're taking the wrong route to get there. Um, and so that's where knowing, having a bit more understanding of where those things lie um, becomes significant. And we see that probably the best example that we see or most common example we see is for, you know, long distance triathletes who, you know, that event is, you know, steady tempo right for for five six seven hours and so that's all they they train and really like we were talking about earlier that the maximal aerobic power is what limits that sustained power and so there's no focus on that and so they never really they hit a plateau and can't push beyond it and so knowing okay that they should probably be working on those map vo2 intervals more will be more beneficial to them for their event because that's their starting point and, and and what we'll do is you know a, a lot of the, the the kind of training terms and training metrics that we're talking about in this podcast in terms of you know, ftp training zones vot max um we've got articles and bike radar to explain all of all of them and, and kind of delve into a lot more detail on each specific term than we'll be able to in this podcast today so I'll, um i'll make sure that we put the links to those articles in the description to the podcast and, and also in the uh in the article that accompanies this podcast on, on bike radar.com um you know, one of the things that I was really keen to ask you, and it's something we've discussed as a team, is that when you start a training plan on a training app, on a smart trainer, invariably it's very focused on um, intervals and you know, often quite intense intervals from kind of sweet spot upwards. Um, uh, is there too much focus on intensity? Uh, you know, I think it's often used because it's it's effective, it's time efficient, it's engaging in terms of being able to get a lot out of a relatively short session. Um, but how kind of sustainable is that long term for someone who is training regularly on on a smart trainer? Yeah, so that's a really good question because the old, you know, back in the day, the the thinking was the winter is for low intensity base miles, building that nice big foundation um, to go out, which is is true. At the same time, you need you need a high ceiling. So we kind of our internal joke is kind of like the building the foundation is yeah, that's how you build a pyramid. But we've advanced and we can do a bit more than building pyramids. We can build skyscrapers now. Um, so the whole notion of, yeah, if you need that really large foundation, depending on your event, what you're focusing on, like if you're doing a grand tour, yeah, you need a pretty big foundation there. Um, that's because you're building a giant skyscraper, um, not a giant giant pyramid. Um, but yeah, so for the focus on high intensity intervals when you're indoors, yes, it's proven to be very effective. It's, it's more time efficient. 
it's generally more engaging, so it helps the time tick away. Um, I don't know. I mean, our everyone listening out there, you can ask yourself what's the longest indoor ride you've done versus the longest outdoor ride you've done. Um, back when I was in my youth and much more gung ho, I regularly did like five hour endurance rides uh, and just in my basement, like watching movies and stuff. I think it would take take quite a large incentive for me to do that nowadays, <laughs> not only with my own other commitments going on, but just the the mental capacity to just sit there riding at the same power indoors the whole time. Um, but the focus on, on intervals is it is the most time efficient. And honestly, the winter is probably the worst time to do high volume just because you're either indoors being really bored because you have to do, if you're doing high volume, it has to be lower intensity. You can't just do a 20 hour week and have a lot of it be high intensity. Um, so it needs to be low intensity. So then the other option is you ride outside. And as we were talking about before we recorded, you know, some places the winter is not as forgiving and it's cold and wet. And that's not exactly a fun way to, to spend time either. And it actually takes longer to recover from a five hour cold, wet outdoor ride than it would a five hour indoor ride, um, both mentally and physically. So the, the real key to having sustainable high intensity interval training be a part of, you know, your whole year's training is to make sure it's balanced out that once you do transition to higher volume, more riding outdoors, you need to drop the intensity there. Maybe drop, take one intensity session out of the week, but make sure you're not going out. The, I think where a lot of people failed back in the day when high intensity training over the winter was first done is they did all this high intensity over the winter, transitioned to outdoors and kept all the intensity, but then bumped up the volume by like 80%. So the training load increases drastically. And then, yeah, they burn out by April. They're in shambles, can't do anything because they took the old approach of, okay, now I'm riding outside. I need to go do these intervals outside, but they never back things out. So it's always a balancing act of as volume goes up, intensity needs to go down a bit and vice versa. So it can be sustainable as long as you're smart about it and don't, as soon as you go outside, you don't just start smashing group ride, like five hour group rides. Mm. So it, yeah, it is some of that kind of being smart about it. It's, it's using indoor training when it's most beneficial to you in terms of the, the climate where you live, you know, for, for us in, in the UK and for you in, um, in, in Colorado, you know, it, it kind of makes sense, I suppose, to kind of stay indoors to, to train through winter you know it's of course it's still nice to get out and ride and you get beautiful winter's days and, and and that's great as well but you know kind of building some of that intensity in winter and then almost kind of flip the old model on its head a little bit and drop it right down in spring to get the volume but still keeping a little bit of intensity there to kind of keep that that top end topped up yeah exactly exactly great well that, that kind of leads on to um or something you mentioned earlier leads on to something i was going to ask about the the kind of efficacy of um a ride on an indoor training versus an outdoor ride um you know so if you have a ride that in in physio- physiological terms it's the same intensity the same length um despite that can there be uh, additional benefits from the indoor ride versus the outdoor ride or vice versa or actually if the kind of underlying science and the physiology is the same then it doesn't matter kind of where you're doing that ride yeah and that's so that's that's the tricky one if the, if if everything's being equal and you hold the same power, same cadence for the duration of both rides. Yeah. They're essentially the same. There, there are some different benefits that you can get into. If you're on a trainer with super low inertia that has different training benefits. Um, basically the equivalent of was a whole ride going up a steep hill versus flat to, to downhill. That's sort of how you can look at inertia on a trainer. Um, so other than that as a component, yes, they'd be the same. The problem is it's, it's nearly impossible for, a normal person to do that, to go out, say you have a two hours steady zone two, you can do that on a trainer to do that outdoors. You need to live somewhere. I don't know where you need to live to, to, to do that uninterrupted for two hours at like a very steady power at a very, very steady cadence. So, you know, there are one of the things that always comes up is okay. If I have a four hour ride to do outside, then I just should do three hours inside because of stops and, you know, traffic lights and downhills, uphills, all that stuff. And from a mental standpoint, I generally agree if you have a four hour ride just to do three hours inside, but at the same time, if you're, if the training plan calls for four hours of riding, it means four hours of riding, not starting your computer 
and then being outside for like four hours of elapsed time and coming back in and having, you know, three hours, 20 of actual pedaling time. That's not a four hour ride in my book, at least. Um, so yeah, they are, if you can get everything to line up, they are the same, but it's just really difficult for most people to actually ride continuously and steady outside compared to inside. Yeah, and, and yeah, if you're anything like us as well, you're you're building an hour for a coffee stop. So, actually, a four-hour ride may t- maybe turns into a a, a two-hour ride, and you, you you're waiting for people at the start, and you've got the coffee stop and uh, traffic lights and traffic. So, um, yeah, yeah, as you say, it's it's pretty much impossible to to kind of match the two up. Um, you know, a lot of what we've talked about so far is is around kind of intensity, um, and I suppose the the kind of flip side to that is is rest and recovery. Um, can you, can you talk a bit more about how um you at wahoo kind of uh when you're building training plans for people virtually or at least kind of offering kind of potential um training plans how you kind of do building that rest and recovery so people are kind of having time to recover and also um get the training adaptations that they need to from the particular session or block that they've had yeah so all the the plans that we make in system um will either follow a a two, one progression or three, one progression. What we mean by that is there'll either be two weeks of hard training with a recovery week or three weeks of hard training with a recovery week. Um, and having that really structured, that structured progression is important. Generally speaking, if you're less experienced with, or like haven't been training as long, a two, one is better. And same thing if you're a master's athlete, so like 55 plus a two, one is generally better just because overall for most people recovery, well, recovery drops as you get older. There's some people with superhuman recovery capabilities who can still do three, one just fine when they're 65, but there's not many people out there like that. Um, so that's one component is just building in specific entire weeks of, of reduced intensity. Um, at the same time, every training week will have at minimum one either fully off day or a day where there's you know, a 30 minute recovery spin, which is super, super low intensity. And just from my experience as a, as a coach, really the only time I ever get, I'll say highly disappointed in my athletes is when they mess up a recovery day, when they're supposed to keep it, you know, under a hundred Watts and they ride just, you know, a steady zone two day. That's not the intent there. The intent is absolute super, super low intensity. So in all our plans, we have those days of either completely off or really, really, really easy recovery rides. Um, and so, you know, your, your hard days need to be hard and your easy days need to be easy. The, the trap a lot of people fall into is, oh, it's, it's a 30 minute recovery ride on the trainer. There's no point in me doing that. So they'll either not do it altogether, which is fine, or they'll just do a zone two ride, which is not fine in that instance. So we, we definitely, specifically build in periods of rest because you need time to adapt to the the training you've been been doing. And a lot of times when people start, some of our plans are kind of, we get a lot of comments in our forums about how they just started a plan and it feels really easy. And it's because they've only, you know, done a few hard sessions the first week and that's fine. The, it, it builds and that's, it's, it's structured so that when you get to the end of those two or three week blocks, you're pretty tired. And almost without question, when you get to the end of a recovery week, you should be kind of chomping at the bit to get back to, to riding hard. I think that's a really good indicator. If you get to the end of a recovery week and you're still feeling pretty stuffed and not motivated to train, then things weren't backed off enough. Yeah. And, and kind of speaking from kind of relatively kind of limited experience, when, when I've started a training plan before, before I kind of used the indoor trainer much and, and was kind of just uh, doing all or most of my training outdoors, you know, sometimes you have to have real discipline to ride uh, sometimes at the low intensity that you've been prescribed, even kind of zone zone two, you know, to begin with, it can just feel really easy because, you know, you're used to going out for an hour or two hours or even three hours and, and kind of riding quite hard for that time or attacking climbs or sprinting for, for town signs. Um, and so, you know, there is, a, I suppose, a kind of certain discipline and um, almost, you know, kind of faith in the process that, you know, these sessions have been set for you for a reason. Um, you know, I think one of the, the the benefits of following a training plan is that it is set for you. You've got the the kind of um, the app or the algorithm kind of working for you or, or a kind of a, an actual coach behind it. But inevitably in life, other stuff happens. Um, your body reacts in, in a different way to what you're expecting. You know, are there kind of any telltale signs that you should look out for where 
actually you need to kind of back it off quicker than what the, the plan's suggesting. Yeah, uh, definitely. And and so that's where, um, you know, there's, we kind of, whenever we're instructing for training zones, there, there are three metrics we we tell people to look at, and, and it's not everyone has the equipment for, for power, but those three metrics are, are power, heart rate, and RPE. I think RPE, so rate of perceived exertion, how hard is what you're doing feel? I think that's probably the most underrated metric. People just completely ignore it, which is a really bad habit to get into. Because one, it helps you learn proper pacing and being able to do efforts without looking at a power meter or your heart rate monitor, just being really in tune with how your body feels. Um, but basically, when you start to see discrepancy between those in terms of your heart rate is really low, the power is where it's supposed to be, but the RPE is really high, that's a bad sign. A lot of times people say, oh, my heart rate's lower for the same power. That's really good. But often what that means is you're just over fatigued. You, you're going from overreaching, which is what you need in training of pushing yourself just a bit beyond your capacity, then allowing yourself to recover. When you go from overreaching to overtraining, it's where okay, you're getting too deep into what your body can handle. So it's going to take, if you keep pushing, it's going to take even longer to bounce back. Um, and then you have, you also have the inverse of, again, if power is low, heart rate's really high and RPE is high, you know, that's a, that's a worrying sign. Basically, if your RPE is ever exceptionally high for, you know, one of those two metrics, whether it be power or heart rate, that's a sign that you should probably back it off. And really there's, that's something that, mentally can be difficult for a lot of people, like just acknowledging, okay, I, I don't have it in me today to do these efforts and it's okay to just pack it in rather than struggling through, pushing through and putting yourself into a deeper hole. So the next session you do is that little bit worse. It's, it's okay to miss sessions. Everyone misses sessions from time to time, whether that's just from you run out of time in the day or you had a bad night's sleep or your nutrition wasn't great, or you're just at your limit. There's nothing wrong with pulling the plug a bit early if, if things are just feeling off. Now, it's not to say a lot of times people, it takes, you know, 20 minutes to start feeling good on the bike. So if you get on and the first five pedal strokes are bad, that's not, that's not a good time to pull the plug. It's once you've been in it for a little bit, you can kind of self-assess. Yep. De definitely, definitely good advice, isn't it? You know, listen, listen to your body and how you're kind of reacting to the, the training and, and what you're asking yourself to do really. Um, so I'm going to move on to just a few of the questions that we'd received from uh, some of our readers. We put out a couple of shout outs asking for people to, to kind of send questions in. Um, one of which was from someone where they said, uh, I don't have a training plan or I want, I'm sorry, I want to start a training plan, but I don't have a goal. Uh, where do they start? You know, how do they kind of take that first step if they're not really sure what their kind of overall objective is? Yeah. So, I mean, there's even if, if you don't have a specific goal, there's there's no reason. I mean, you could do any sort of event based training plan and just replace that event day with, you know, another fitness test. But like our, in, our, in our app system, we have a, a series of plans called general fitness that are, are just for that, where it's the goal is generally really those plans are based around how much time you have available. And then again, for ours, it's it's what your general weaknesses strengths and weaknesses are. And those are just designed to just get you overall, you know, more improved. You can also, you know, if you don't have a specific event goal, but say you want to get, you know, a higher sprint power, or higher one minute power, whatever, there are also plans that can focus more on, on that. Like, even if it's just a, yeah, and that internal mental goal of pushing yourself, oh, I want to see, you know, my one minute power improve. There's there's plans that can focus on that, but don't, don't let not having a, I mean, it sounds like for that person, their goal is to be on a training plan. And so by that, as long as they, they can start just about any plan they want, as long as it's appropriate for the hours they have available and they'll be achieving that, that goal. And, and, and that kind of leads on to the next one that I was going to ask, um, what you mentioned around, you know, for, for some people, a goal might just be to, uh, improve a particular metric, i.e. kind of one minute power, but, um, you know, for someone whose goal is to to lose weight or to burn fat through indoor training um, and effectively kind of using indoor training on a bike as a replacement for the gym, perhaps, what's the best way to go about that in terms of a, a kind of prescribed training plan? Yeah, so that's a, this is a tricky one. Um, at, at, at the end of the day, a, a weight loss plan is all about, um, you know, having your caloric intake be lower than your energy output. Um, there's like, 
whatever nutritional strategy you want in terms of whatever diet you want, that is well out of my zone to, to tell people about. And it's absolutely a, a personal thing in terms of what are you actually, what set of foods are you actually going to be able to eat long-term that allow you to have a deficit. Um, generally speaking, if you're already moderately aerobically fit, then really having the pre predominant amount of your um, intensity be in that zone two endurance is, is what's going to be better because as intensity increases, you start to use a greater percentage of carbohydrates relative to fat. So by the time you're at threshold, with the exception of one world tour rider we've tested in our lab, once you're at threshold, you're using hundred percent carbohydrate. And so, and it may be at 80% of threshold, you're using 80% carbohydrate. So you need to find, it needs to be generally lower intensity. Now this isn't applicable for most people because they don't have a metabolic cart line around, but there's a term called fat max where you have the greatest percentage, the greatest amount of fat burned, which might not actually be like, say at super low intensity, you're 90% fat, but that intensity is super low. You can go a bit harder and maybe it's only 50% fat, but because the overall energy expenditure is higher, you're burning more fat per minute when you're at that 50%. But generally speaking, that's going to be in that zone two range. And so that's where you want to spend more of your time riding. Um, one of the issues that a lot of people have, myself included, um, is when I do, when you do high intensity work, your appetite is disproportionately spiked relative to doing the same total workload at a lower intensity. So that's something for you as an individual. I know if I'm trying to lose weight, it's a lot more fasted morning endurance rides rather than short interval rides. Cause I'll just eat all more than, more than make up for what I burned by, by eating a lot more. Cause I'm just hungrier. Um, now that's, if you're already relatively aerobically fit, if you're not as aerobically fit and want to start into this, you know, you're, and you're willing to commit to like two, three months of this, and you're not just looking for a one month magic bullet of do this and I'll, you know, drop 15 kilos and be good to go is, is you actually would want to start with something more focused on your VO2 max or maximal aerobic power. Again, raise that ceiling up because then after, you know, a one, two week block of that, you'll be able to ride at higher intensity at that zone two. So you'll be able to burn more fat per minute at that zone two, if you've increased that ceiling a bit. Um, again, it, it kind of depends and, and really nutrition plays the biggest role in there. And so for, for when I've worked with people on that, it's really, okay, those first two weeks don't drastically change your diet, just get into the habit of exercising. Because again, most people, they'll just still be really hungry when they do that high intensity stuff. And then once you transition to lower intensity, that's when, and you're already in the habit of riding every day or riding every other day, then that's when you start to make the nutritional changes that, that you need to make. And yeah, you know, I, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, that idea that it's, you know, a much bigger picture when you are talking about, um, kind of body composition or, or weight loss, um, yeah, there's a lot to consider there, isn't there? There's a lot of resources and advice that people can seek to, uh, you know, to put together a, a plan or a strategy that, that works for them. Um, I think, you know, definitely really interesting as well, just as a side note to hear about the world tour rider who um, is still burning fat when they're at threshold, but I'm, I'm not sure you'll be able to tell us who that was. Um, I don't think I'd be able to either, but yeah, they, um, it was before they were world tour and we were able to do some testing for them and, and write up a write something up to the team that they've been racing on. Um, and it was a very interesting test because all their numbers were some of their numbers, like that fat burn were incredibly good. And another large portion were actually some of the worst I'd ever seen, which basically just meant they had the capacity to get even better and they have since done so. So it was cool to see that. But yeah, that was a very, yeah, we like triple checked the calibration after that test was done. So I was like, there's no way that's, <laughs> that's happened. <laughs> No, but then I suppose, um, yeah, the, the numbers that you must be working with when, you, when you're working with kind of world-class or world-tour athletes are, are kind of just on a different scale, full stop, you know, they're, they are kind of in, insane athletes. Um, I think nutrition just generally, uh, you know, not necessarily in terms of kind of 
weight loss and kind of wider nutrition but nutrition for indoor training is a, is a kind of interesting um topic i think but you know, particularly for people who are leading busy lives and so they they can just kind of jump on the trainer when they have a spare hour but perhaps haven't necessarily kind of thought of how they need to fuel for what might be a very hard kind of one or two hour session is there any kind of advice that you can offer around that yeah so really the one thing that's important to know just from a, a physiological standpoint is hot like we were talking about like as intensity goes up carbohydrate becomes a larger fuel source so doing any sort of high intensity training you need carbohydrates like you can get people who are on full keto ketogenic diets they're taking very little carbohydrates and they can they can say they're doing maximal effort and their rpe will be 10 their heart rate will be high but it's physiological not possible to do maximal efforts without carbohydrates and beyond that you actually produce more you use less oxygen per let me rephrase that for every liter of oxygen you take in you get more watts out of carbohydrate than you do fat so even if you're using 100 fat and at your maximum op- oxygen uptake which really isn't possible but even if that were to happen you'd still be putting out less power than if you were using carbohydrate so you need to be topped up with carbohydrates for indoor training sessions and, and ideally that means some sort of meal two to three hours beforehand um that's obviously really not possible for some people if you know you're you're doing your ride right when you get back from the office and you have meetings or something in the hours before that we had for our indoor classes a while ago we had um uh, a business guy who came in like every wednesday for us at six o'clock and he'd, he'd tested over the weekend with us and then every session he did for like four weeks with us in that afternoon session he just completely fail and we'd have to bump his threshold down like 30 percent and he'd always be like oh this trainer is not calibrated so the next week he'd jump on a different one and be like oh this one's not calibrated and and then we talked to him and it was just that you know he eats lunch at 12 and then is in like conference meeting calls until he gets off at 5 30 and then comes and tries to do a really high intensity session so that just doesn't doesn't work um if you if you can't eat in that you know two to three hour window beforehand you then need to be careful because you have from like a little over an hour to 30 minutes in you, you want to actually try to avoid any sort of carb heavy item because you'll get, as soon as you have carbs, your blood sugar spike, your insulin will spike. And so after about an hour, you'll actually get kind of a blood sugar crash. And so if you're trying to then start your workout right then, you're going to feel really bad for a bit of it. So, you know, having a, like a gel, you know, 15 minutes before a trainer ride is, is generally the best bet if you haven't done anything. Um, and then having, you know, you need to be drinking when you're on the trainer because you tend to sweat a bit more. And so having some sort of carbohydrate mix in there is going to be good. But yeah, it's really, it's not just, yeah, nutrition is going to be key there. You want to be taking in the carbs, but then also just acknowledge like, okay, if you know you're going to be a little underfueled, don't be surprised if you need to dial things down a bit just because you're lacking the fuel there. And yeah, I think, yeah, I can definitely speak from personal experience there where you're kind of, you're keen to finish work and yeah, jump, jump on the, um, the, the smart trainer for a particular session that you've got lined up or, or a virtual race or, um, whatever it is you've got, you've got planned and you just haven't kind of factored in the, the nutrition like you would even on a, say like a group ride on a weekend. If you're going out with friends, you know that you're going to wake up and have a good breakfast and you, you're kind of in a slightly different mindset. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think it is clearly really important consider to consider. I think you know also interested in the rider that you had in who would always kind of eat at lunch and not eat for six hours. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's always the 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 power meter or the spark trainer that's not calibrated and not the <laughs> not 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 the rider. But um, yeah, I think we've all been there as well. Um, yeah, something we discussed as as a team when I mentioned that, that I was going to do this podcast with you. You know, we've got you know people on bike radar who you know some love road riding some love mountain biking you know anything in between um you know should mountain bike riders be doing anything different generally speaking to road riders when using an indoor training um you know i.e uh you know riding a mountain bike typically means lots of kind of short sharp power spikes unlike road cycling which you know to generalize you know you're kind of pedaling more than on a mountain bike and you know generally a kind of um more kind of steady state level if it's on a group ride so are, are there any kind of key differences between the kind of discipline that you're targeting um there there are uh to an extent um one thing to to always keep in mind with with training is that any any sort of efforts you do they 
they cross a lot of the different physiological aspects. So like just doing, you know, a super easy ride with nothing but sprint efforts. Okay. That can actually improve your one minute power can improve your VO2 max. It can improve your threshold. So there's always crossover there. And when you're talking about training is, is somewhat different than, you know, your, the demands of your event. Everyone talks about training for the demands of your event, which is true up to a point. There's enough crossover for most of the indoor sessions that it's not as it's like the majority of your sessions don't need to be hyper specific to your discipline. So like, for example, if you are training for whatever short tracker or actually cross country, whatever, you know, you shouldn't, not every high intensity training session should just be, you know, a bunch of sharp five to 30 second to one minute efforts. You still want to get a variety to hit a lot of the different um, physiological areas there. Um, I will say that the position specific aspect is far more important when you're talking about indoor training. Um, and so for whether that's mountain biking, like if you're, I know a lot of mountain bikers do their cross training on the road bike, but if you're going to be doing, you know, your main goals are on the mountain bike outdoors and you're going to be doing high intensity stuff indoors, you should be doing those on a mountain bike. And, and same thing goes for people who are, you know, training for time trials is you should be doing your efforts and a lot of your testing in your aero position. I can't tell me how, how, like how many people do, you know, their, their FTP test on a road bike or on their TT bike, but just be on the, the bullhorns and, and do really good numbers. And then as soon as they get into their race position and they, their power falls off by 5%, they don't make any adjustments and just completely blow up. It's, it's much better to train in your quote unquote race position at lower powers than it is most of the time to to train at higher powers on a different bike altogether yeah and, and i know uh simon bromley our senior technical writer on bike radar if he was here he'd be, he'd be nodding his head because he's uh you know he is someone that does a lot of time trials and, and you know, he has his tt bike on the smart trainer i think partly because uh it's not a bike that he wants to to or particularly enjoys riding outside in winter um but also as you say you know it's it's a rare opportunity to actually kind of build up um quite a lot of time in in the position and ultimately kind of be using the bike that you might be using come race day um i think kind of time trials are particularly interesting aren't they because you know i'm, I'm certainly not an expert here but the, the kind of the hip angle when you're in that aerodynamic position is a lot more different to a kind of more open kind of general um kind of normal road bike position and so that can affect how much power you can actually physically put down can't it yeah so it's it's a combination of that and then also generally speaking especially nowadays um with the the arm positions that a lot of people are getting, you know, the, the shrugged shoulders, the tucked head, you actually do those, your, your collarbones, like your rib cage, all of these things, they actually do have a component for, they help you, your lungs move up and down. So you have your, your diaphragm, which is the most effective way to pull air in, into your lungs. Um, and you'll see like diaphragm breathing is something if you're a TT or don't know what that is, you should look it up and learn how to do it. Um, part of that closed off hip angle is it can be harder to do proper diaphragm breathing, especially if, you know, you're not at your leanest, let's say, just because your, your legs get in the way of your stomach to some extent, if you're in a pretty low position. Um, but yeah, so being in that, what you're doing with your arms, like using your shoulders, using your upper body to hold a really tight position, you're actually taking away a bit of your capacity to breathe oxygen in. Like, so you actually can't take in as much oxygen in that position. So that can be a really large factor in that drop off of power. Um, and that being said, it's also can be really difficult to hold that position. It's one thing to be at a bike fit or, you know, do something and, and hold a super awesome aero position for a minute while pedaling easy and say, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. That's it. Versus, okay, what happens when I'm 15 minutes into a 20 minute all out effort? Am I actually holding this stuff? I think, and that's where like gym work becomes super important for, for time trust. I don't, if, if any of you have watched, um, Ashton Lambie, um, at, at, at either worlds or it is, um, pursuit world record. He's someone who I got to train with a lot at the national team for the team pursuit stuff. And, his, his gym routine is, is very specific so that he can be ridiculously scrunched up 
but just absolutely rock solid. And that's something that you need to, you need to practice. That doesn't just, that doesn't just happen by riding in that position or doing gym work. You need to do that combination of both to really maximize that. So you see less drop off of power. Like I'm sure Lambie could do, you know, 50 more Watts. Well, maybe not, not now back in the day, he could definitely do like 50 more Watts on his road bike than on his pursuit bike, just because of the position. But he's since now adapted to that. So the difference is negligible between those two. Yeah. And, and I suppose if, if you're, you're kind of really serious about pursuit riding or, or time trial riding, there's also the balance of the power that you can get down into a position versus the potential aerodynamic gain versus, you know, kind of comfort and what you can sustain for a 10 mile event or a 25 mile event mm-hmm. or um, a 24 hour time trial, you know, if you're a complete yeah. masochist here in the UK. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you, you've actually just kind of uh, touched upon an area that I was going to talk about. And we've just got a couple of questions left, but um, you know, broadly speaking, how useful is off the bike training? Because I think, you know, clearly for someone like Ashton Lambie, there's uh, it's, it's hugely beneficial, but for, for kind of most real world riders who maybe have kind of five to 10 hours of, of riding a week, you know, is it just the kind of the cherry on the icing on the cake where, you know, if you have an extra hour, an hour on the bike will always be better or would you kind of always kind of advocate for some off bike work? Uh, I'd, I'd always advocate for some off the bike work and that's, it doesn't need to be your off the bike work doesn't need to be like a 90 minute gym session twice a week and take up three hours of your training time. It can be something like 15, 20 minutes, three times a week where okay, you could ride for another 15, 20 minutes of zone two on three of your rides that week. That's not really going to make a big difference. But if you're, I I've, I've met very few cyclists who just happen to be naturally flexible after training for a while. Like every, almost every cyclist gets tight hamstrings, get tight quads, their hips get tight. It's a very unnatural position. When you look at someone riding a bike versus walking, which is what we're designed to do. Um, and so you get these imbalances that can that can honestly take away from your capacity on the bike and and it goes like if you're I also don't know any cyclist who when they started didn't have some form of like low back pain or some sort of shoulder pain or their their arms get tired whatever that's all stuff that can be worked on pretty time efficiently off the bike that just makes okay maybe it doesn't add any power to you but if your back doesn't hurt over a four-hour ride versus it hurting you're going to feel a lot better when you get off the bike at the end. If you're not having to do the whole like, Oh, like slow, get off the bike and, you know, stretch, stretch out your low back and like waddle back, back to the, back to the kitchen to, to get some food. If you can avoid that, that's, you know, even just mentally, that's a, that's a really big win. I mean, just, just on that, is there anything to be said for, um, I suppose your kind of indoor trainer setup, you know, in terms of, um, a bike on a smart trainer or any turbo trainer it's you know generally it's it's fixed you know some trainers have a little bit of kind of play effectively kind of built in but you know generally you're in a very fixed position versus out on the road or out on, on the trail on a mountain bike where you are a lot more kind of dynamic in your position is that something that you kind of should watch out for if you're doing a lot of kind of volume on a on an indoor trainer you to some extent yes generally if you have issues with your in, like indoor trainer where you get things are going really numb or you're just really uncomfortable and find you need to get out of the saddle a lot. That's actually probably more indicative of a bike fit issue to the point where if you're dialed in correctly, even if you're not used to just sitting in the saddle all, all day, like if you have a good proper bike fit that fits, you know, you're not just taking whatever stock stem came on your bike, you know, with whatever spacers came with it and you've, you know, looked at your, yeah, basically I, Another way of saying this is a bike fits probably the best investment just about anyone can make because being comfortable on your bike is important. And yes, you need to, it's probably always good to get out of the saddle a bit when you're indoors anyway, but if you have a proper bike fit, it's really not, it shouldn't be necessary. Okay. And that, you know, that, that leads on to the final question. Um, nicely, although it is, it is a, a delicate one potentially from a reader. And that, that is, how do I stop my never regions getting numb? And this person says, uh, it never happens out on the road, but seems to happen every time I'm on the turbo. Is there anything they should be looking out for? So that is going to be, I mean, you might want to look at what sort of saddle you have. Um, I know like I've been through probably 12 different saddles over the year and I'll land on one and, and stay with it for a while. I know I remember back in 2011, I started using a Damo on my TT bike 
and just got endless grief from all my teammates at the time because that was a triathlete saddle and that's not what TTers did. And now you're you're hard pressed to find someone on a TT bike who doesn't have some sort of super cutout saddle on it. Um, but that was just because, okay, that was the one saddle I could do that I could stay in my aero bars and not, you know, have serious issues. And so I'd probably recommend again, the bike fit, but then just checking out different, different saddles in the inner room, definitely standing regularly is going to help with that. Standing on a trainer is a bit awkward and you do need to use different form than you would outside. But if it's just to relieve pressure, that's a big thing. I think the reason I originally learned how to ride out of the saddle on rollers was for that exact reason is that I just, things would go numb and I needed to <laughs> stand up. And so it, it took, I, I think i biffed it a couple times into a bookshelf, but I eventually learned how to stand up on rollers just so, yeah, you can relieve that pressure. And it is, you know, saddle comfort's always a difficult thing as well when you talk about people wondering how tour riders can sit in the saddle for that long. You have to remember that they're pushing a lot of watts, so they don't have as much weight on the saddle and they weigh less to begin with. So there's overall less pressure down there for super elite riders. So it's not as necessarily as much about how long you're in the saddle. It's just that total pressure. So if, especially on recovery efforts during a, a trainer ride, that's probably the best time to get out of the saddle because you have the least amount of, you're taking the least amount of pressure off, off the nether regions at that time. Yeah. And I, and I think one, um, one other thing potentially for that person to look out for, if, if they're not using a, a, a kind of a front wheel riser block, maybe that could be something to kind of lift lift the front end of the bike up because if it's kind of unnaturally low or it's kind of sitting lower than it normally would do, then maybe they're kind of sliding forward on the saddle um, where they might not be, where they might not be on, on, on the, on the regular road bike. Um, Mac, we can, we can leave it there. You know, we've, we've had an hour of your time and it's been, it's been fascinating to, to talk to you. We've covered a lot of ground. So really appreciate you coming on the bike radar podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I will say we do have, um, between myself and Neil and some of our other sports science team members, we do have our own podcast called The Knowledge that are like 15-minute episodes that go into some of these things. So I know this is a shameless plug, but we're here anyway. So that might be uh, worth if, if some of these topics are specifically the, the nutrition, the, the training intensity stuff. We have some shorter 15-minute episodes where we get into that a bit more. I think we, I think we can absolutely let you have that that plug. Um, and it, you know, it, it sounds like that you know there will be clearly a lot of knowledge in, on that podcast. So yeah, definitely recommend that our listeners check that out. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. Um, please do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast wherever you get your podcast. We always uh, value your support and do leave us a, a review. We always value your feedback and and do read every review that we do get. Um, that's it for now. Do come back for episode four. Um, well, I'll be back with Simon Bromley for our final podcast in this series. Um, but once again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.